had to go through some of my mail today. This is the best kind of mail. It, it comes from the heart. And it comes from the heart of our children who know how to make postcards look good. And they put good scriptures on them front and back. And I appreciate our children so very, very much in this church. And what a joy it has been down through the years to get a good crop of kids and watch them grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We appreciate so very much you being here today. If you are visiting with us, we welcome you to the service. I certainly am appreciative of the fact when one of our preachers from days gone by drops in, Brother Wayne Thompson, who pastors the Sovereign Grace Baptist Church down in Rusk, Texas. And I've been in his church many, many times. And every time I've ever been there, it's been a real blessing to fellowship with those people. And Brother Wayne, you and your family, your dear wife, and your church family, we're so glad to have you here today, and we welcome you to the services here in our church. I was noticing two or three things as we were making our way from home to the church today, that when this church was established back on November the 1st, 1980, it was a beautiful day just exactly like this one is. And two churches came together and both needing pastoral leadership expressed their desire to call me as their pastor. And it has been my joy and it has been my challenge down through the years to be faithful to this church uh, in preaching and in teaching God's blessed word. You have perhaps heard some things you've never heard before. Or you've heard some things that you have heard before, but check the scriptures to see whether these things be so or not. A couple of three things I want to just share with you and kind of set the stage for the three-hour sermon that Brother Randy said I was going to be preaching this morning. Really, it's about two hours and a half, but it's close to three hours. Yes, sir. this particular track was put out many years ago by Arthur Pink before he passed away. And if you know anything at all about, about Arthur Pink, you know that you were always in a blessing to read anything that he wrote. And so in this particular edition, he puts a quote, a quotation from Charles Spurgeon down here. Now, I don't know if you're old enough and adult enough to handle Charles Spurgeon or not, but this is a good statement, and it's so good I wanted to share it with you. Mr. Spurgeon in this statement says, I do not ask whether you believe Calvinism. It is possible you may not but I believe you will before you enter heaven. (laughs) I am persuaded that as God may have washed your hearts, 
He will wash your brains before you enter heaven. That's good. I like that. Absolutely. Uh, and then you might take these little choice tidbits, some of the things that we believe and we teach and have taught down through the years, that if God is not sovereign, he is a liar. And if God is not sovereign, he is a loser. And if God is not sovereign, he is a joke. And if God is not sovereign, he is not almighty God. Ten things God cannot be. Number one, he cannot be surprised. He cannot be intimidated. He cannot be duplicated. He cannot be regulated. He cannot be terminated. He cannot be outdated. He cannot be anticipated. He cannot be dominated. He cannot be exasperated. And he cannot be educated. I wish you folks would take notes on the sermons. I really do. Y'all ought to believe that. If that's the God that you worship and you worship the God of the Bible, that's who the God of the Bible is. He's God Almighty. And we do honor the sovereignty of God and all of his gracious attributes as we study them from time to time. I try to stay within a time limit this morning. I know you have things that you need to do. I shared this with our people in this church many years ago. And when you stay in a church, as long as we've been in this church, you go through a whole herd of people. And some hear things and others were not present to hear it. I was going through some of my books. Matter of fact, going through all of them, we intend to take all of our about 2,000 books that we were busy boxing this last week, about 40 boxes of books. And this little book was given to me by my great, 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 great grandmother, probably my aunt. She's one of the most spiritual women that I have met in my life. And she came to me on my birthday, which was August of 1951. And I was standing out underneath a clothesline. Now, if you are any of the young people of our church, you have no idea what a clothesline is. But I was standing underneath the clothesline when Ida walked up to me and she said, I want to give you something for your birthday. And I was thrilled, not knowing what it was going to be. She gave me this little book. You can barely see it because it's just about all gone now. Old pages, old covers. And it is a book entitled Tombstone of Sincerity by Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan. And he loved the doctrines of grace. And she put that little book in my hand and she said, Daniel Watts, if you read this book, it'll help you to do what's right. 
and it'll help you to make the right decisions. That same three months later, my pastor came to me and said, I'd like to have you preach for us in the service tonight. That's the first sermon I ever preached in December of 1951. Uh, this is a tremendous little book. In it, let me enjoy it, would you please? Was a little note. She said, this little book, and she wrote this. This little book was the property of Willis Green, the father of James Willis Green, the father of Johnny Green, Smart, the mother of Flora Smart, Cozart, the mother of Daniel Watts, Cozart. I present this to Daniel Watts by his Aunt Ida Green Wisnant, August the 18th, 1951. Little did I know that Aunt Ida was a five-point Calvinist. I didn't know. I'd never heard of that before. But you know what God providentially was bringing a lot of things together. Because as I said two months later, I brought my first message from the Word of God to Front Street Baptist Church in Roxborough, North Carolina. And in 1983, it pleased the Lord to open my eyes what they were totally unable to see back that early. But I began to see and understand the sovereignty of God Almighty that God is absolutely God and he will always do that which is right and which is best. And not only that, but God saves sinners according to his plan and not to my plan or anybody else's plan. And the word of God is so clear to teach those truths. And I just, I read stuff like this. It's good, you know, it just, it just is. And I wanted to share that with you. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John chapter number 3. We're going to be looking at, if God wills, verse number 16. The book of John chapter number 3, verse number 16. I want to spare the reading of these precious words that begin with verse 1. talks about a man by the name of whose name was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. Uh, and just skip down to verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is very important to understand that Christ is speaking to one man in this text. And he's not speaking to a congregation. He's not speaking to his church. But he's speaking to one man and that one man's name is Nicodemus. And that is not disturbed in type until you get down to verse number 21, 22. It says, after these things, 
came Jesus and his disciples under the land of Judea. Prior to that, he spent most of the time that you read John chapter number 3 talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. He spoke these words to Nicodemus. This passage of Scripture has to do with a conversation which took place between two men, the Lord Jesus Christ and a man by the name of Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was highly educated. He was a very religious man who came to see Christ one evening. My, he was full of questions. In verse number four, Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then again, he brings it up in verse number nine. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Our Lord was full of answers. And Nicodemus didn't understand even half of them. There are two predominant truths that are here emphasized by our Lord. And this is most important. Number one, Jews need regeneration as much as any Gentile needs it. In verse number three, except a man be born again. And verse number seven, you must, you must, Nicodemus, be born. You haven't been born enough yet. You're going to have to be born again, verse seven. Religion and credentials were not enough to get Nicodemus into heaven. And they're still not enough today to get anybody into heaven. Generation or the new birth is essential. You must be born again. Second of all, Jews do not have exclusive rights to salvation. Notice in verse number 16, again God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Gentiles have access to salvation in Christ Jesus by faith. No Jew will ever go to heaven because he was a Jew. Never. John 3.16 is one of the greatest and most quoted verses of Scripture in the Bible. I want to go on record that I believe it with all of my heart. Why? Because it is the Word of God may not understand it properly, but I believe it with all of my heart. I believe that God loved the world. That's what he said. I believe that God gave his only begotten son. That's what it says. And I believe that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I believe it just as strongly as I believe Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated had two young preacher boys up outside of Oklahoma City in a Bible conference who came to me and said, what do you think about John 3, 16? 
I said, I believe it. And you as a believer, if you believe the word of God, you must believe it. I want to answer that with the following two points. Number one, the abuse of John 3.16, what it does not say. And then the beauty of John 3.16, what it does say. Let's look for a few moments at the abuse of John 3.16. We abuse a verse of scripture when we try to make it say something that it does not say. We abuse the scripture when we try to bend it into our doctrine and into our theology. We abuse the scripture when we build an entire system of theology on only one verse of scripture. Most people will say that John 3.16 means this. Let me repeat that preface. Most people that I know of and that I've talked with down through the years will say something like this about the meaning of John 3.16. They say God loves everybody in the world and wants everybody in the world to be saved. He sent his son to die for everybody's sin. And if they want to be saved, they can be, but only if they believe in him. But that, dear church, is not what that verse is saying. Christ is speaking to a Jew, a born Jew, who knew the law coming and going, and who knew the scriptures of the Old Testament frontwards and backwards. The abuse to this verse comes when we try to make the word world, W-O-R-L-D, mean everybody in the world. Now, you cannot do that and be a student of the Word of God. The Old Testament was written basically in Hebrew. The New Testament was written basically in Greek. And various Hebrew words and various Greek words are used over and over and over again to explain different things that they're talking about. We look at sometimes the English language, which is a very uh, vulgar language to be sure. But when you get into the Greek, you get into an expanded language. It means this, it means that, it means the other. There are many words that are spelled exactly alike, but they mean something differently. We have to study according to what the word is and how it is used in the scripture. There is a verse of scripture in Luke chapter 2, verse number 1. Let me read it for you, and I ask you to jot it down. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, if you said that in Tyler, Texas, you're talking about all the world should be taxed. But he's not talking about everybody in the world when he said that. 
All the world is the Roman world over which Julius was the leader. And not everybody who was living on planted earth. Those outside the Roman Empire did not have to pay taxes to Rome. Many of those people lived in what was called independent governments and independent nations, and they were not subject to Caesar's decree. So he's using the word here not to explain everybody in the world, but everybody who lived in the Roman world was required by law to go in agreement with these taxes. And many of them had independent forms of government. There's another verse that speaks of this in 1 John chapter 5, verse number 19. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Now you take that statement. It's a pretty broad statement, is it not? The whole world lieth in wickedness. Refers to the world of unbelievers. God's people surely do not lie in wickedness. We may do some things we ought not to do, but we don't pursue it as a main course of life. It does not mean everybody in the world, not the world's population though. It does not mean everybody in the world, nor does it mean the world's population. The abuse of this verse comes when we try to make God's love everybody in the world. God so loved the world. It's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Yes, sir, God loved the world. God loved everybody in the world, doesn't it? Amen. Praise God for it. And on and on we rent and on and on we rattle without figuring out. No, not everybody in the world lies in wickedness. In John chapter 17, verses 6 through 9, it contains a portion of our Lord's prayer. Our Lord's prayer to the Father before he went to Calvary. And in that passage, and it could not be any plainer than you read it in your Bible, John chapter number 17, verses 6 through 9. Christ is praying to the Father. I have manifested, <clears throat> I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and they have known surely I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now pay close attention to verse number 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. There's some folks the Lord doesn't pray for. Doesn't pray for those who are after the world, but those who 
are after the heart of God. If God loved everybody in the world, I have a question for you. Why would he refuse to pray for them? If he loves everybody in the world, why would he refuse to pray for them? Because they do not belong to him. If they belong to him, he prays for them. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Love not the world. Now that's what it says. Well, now what does that mean, Brother Kozar? It means love not the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Does God love everybody? You have a problem there. How can we reconcile this statement if God loves everybody in the world yet tells us not to? If God loves everybody in the world and it is, don't you do what I'm doing. You, you do it differently, but don't do what I'm doing. Now, I love everybody in the world, but you're not allowed to love everybody in the world. You've got a problem with that. If this be so, then God must love the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What is the love of the world? This is the love of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The abuse of this verse comes also when we rob God of his sovereignty. That is, when we try to take away from God his absolute jurisdiction over that which he has created. If he wants everybody saved, then it is obvious he just cannot pull it off. Please understand, I'm not being facetious here. I'm telling you, if God really wants to save everybody else, why can't he pull it off? And of course, the Armenian would say the reason he can't pull it off is because men won't let him. They don't believe in the sovereignty of God. How much restraint do I put on God? How much restraint do you put on God? How many things has God ever wanted to do, but he had to back off because you wouldn't vote for it? If he wants everybody saved, it's obvious he can't pull it off. God becomes helpless then in John 3.16. Because man's will is greater than God's sovereign will. God wants to save everybody in the world, but cannot do it because man stands in his way. They believe that. And many preachers preach that. And many church members lap it up week after week after week. So much for the abuse of John 3.16. Let's spend the rest of the time on the beauty of John 3.16. There are three terms I want to force upon you, if I might, 
Again, the verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those three terms, number one, is the love of God. What are you talking about? When you talk about the love of God, what does that mean? What does that entail? Second of all, what is the object of God's love? Why does God love anybody? And thirdly, what is the intent and purpose of God's love? In John 3.16, let's look at the love of God. The first part of it. The love of God. What is the love of God? There is a sense in which God is good and benevolent to everybody. Even on your worst day, God's good to you. And God is good to me. God has a benevolent love for his creation. The Bible says he maketh it to rain on and to fall on the just and the unjust alike. God doesn't wait until all the unsaved people get out of the way before he causes it to rain. He rains on the just. Why does he do that? Because God is a God of benevolent love. God made a creation and God loved that creation. And God provides for that creation with his benevolent love. They're not objects of his love, but rather objects of his justice and punishment. Do you remember God, let me just repeat, Rephrase that. I don't want it to be the least bit confusing. God does not love those already in hell. God does not love those already in hell. They are not objects of his love, but rather objects of his justice and his punishment. When the rich man wound up in hell, you know what he asked for? He wanted a brand new Rolls Royce. No, I don't believe so. He wanted one drop of water. And God said, nothing doing. Now, when you can read love into that, my dear friend, let's talk some more about it, all right? Not even a drop of water for those already in hell. God does not love the workers of iniquity. How do we know that, Brother Kozar? Because that's what your Bible teaches if you got the right translation of Scripture. That's what the Bible speaks about. God does not love the workers of iniquity. In Psalm 5, verse 5, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now we have been programmed down through the years to say that God hates the sin but he loves those who work it. No, God doesn't even like the workers of iniquity. Huh? What what do you do with that? Will you believe it? That involves sinners as well as the sins they commit. 
God does not love those <clears throat> who love violence. According to Psalm 11, verse number 5, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence my soul hateth. Now, the Democrats may have a wonderful time with it, but God just has no love for it, okay? Is that all right? Well, if it's not all right, I'll say it again. You can't have violence and have the love of God in it. The Bible says that God did not love Esau. Boy, we got that one fixed up right. That's by saying that hate doesn't really mean hate in the Bible. It means just really a little perturbed with some people. Well, no, I tell you, you study the words, get a word study on the word hate and find out. As a matter of fact, let's take just a moment. In Romans chapter 9, verse number 13. Romans chapter 9, verse number 13. Are you watching it? Are you looking at it? As it is written. Did you see that? Now, some people, they choke to death because they can't get any further than that. It says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, where is it written? Now, wherever it's written in the word of God, it's truth. It's not a lie. It's truth. It's already been written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. It's written according to the word of God. Where is it written? Well, it is written very clearly in the book of Malachi, chapter number 1. The book of Malachi, chapter 1. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Isn't that a part of the Word of God? Of course it is. Notice what it says, by the way. The burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob? That's where it's written. Now watch very carefully the next four words of verse 3. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, and over in the book of Genesis 25, 30, Edom is equated with Esau. Whereas Edom saith, or Esau said, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate place. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I'll throw them down. They'll call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. He's not going to just like Esau a little bit less than he likes Jacob. He said, I'm going to hate Esau 
as long as my indignation lasts. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. God did not love Esau. The object of God's love. We talk about the love of God, what it is. Now let's look at the object of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The object of God's love is here in the text, the world. God so loved the world. The different words for world in the New Testament is astounding. You do not have just one single word in the Greek or in the Hebrew that's translated world every time you find the word, English word, world in your Bible. Sometimes it comes from one Hebrew word, one Greek word, another Hebrew word, another Greek word, and you have to be versified a little bit in what these words mean in order to understand what the meaning of the text is that you're reading. You just can't apply the same thing every time you read it to the same word. There is a little word, A-I-O-N, eon. We pronounce it eon. It is used over a hundred times in the New Testament, and it means an age or a time period. A period of time from point one to point two is an eon. And it's called world, but it's an age. In Matthew 12, 32, Whosoever speaketh a word against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him in this world. And there's the word eon, not cosmos, but eon, nor the world or the age to come. He's talking about various ages. This world has gone through various ages during the last 2,000 years and will continue to do so, I believe, until the second coming of Christ. That's one of those words. And it is used 100 times in the New Testament. There is another Greek word, oikomene, oikomene. It is used 15 times in the New Testament and it means the inhabitant earth where the people live, where the people habitate, where the people come together. In Luke chapter 4, verse 5, fall down and worship me, so says Satan to Christ, and I will give you the kingdoms of this world. He's not talking about France. He's not talking about Germany. He's not talking about Ukraine. He is talking about where inhabitation takes place. All the kingdoms, all the peoples of the world, we would use that terminology. There is another word, G-E. If I mispronounce it, please forgive me. It is pronounced as though it were G-H-A-Y, gay or guy. G-E used 250 times in the New Testament, meaning the ground, the earth, the seraterma, the, the embodiment of the, the world, the, the earth as it were. In Revelation 13, 3, 
and all the world wondered after the beast. It's used entirely different. And then you come to the little word, K-O-S-M-O-S, cosmos, used some 200 times in the New Testament, and it has various meanings. This is the word in John 3.16, for God so loved the cosmos. Well, for us to properly understand what the cosmos is, we need to understand what does that mean, cosmos. Cosmos, it is sometimes translated the adornment, the beauty, the magnificent, and it is a beautiful day and words of that nature. Now, the different meanings of cosmos, (laughs) each word doesn't mean the very same thing. The different meanings of cosmos, the order or the adornment, sometimes refers to the universal world, universal world. This world would include heaven and earth, and not just earth, but heaven and earth. In Acts 17, verse 24, God that made the world, we say we believe he made the world, what are we talking about? We're talking about the creation of the world as we know it. It's the adornment of God. God has made a beautiful world. It is an adornment. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. The Bible speaks of the creature world, where all creatures, human, animal, fish, fowl, dwell. That's the world. In John 21, 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did the which if they should be written, every one I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. All about the different animals, all about the different populations. And then the created world sometimes is referred to where all the created things are in Hebrews chapter 1 verse number 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Talking about the world above, that's the heavenly world. Talking about the world around us, that's the world around us, the earthly world. And thirdly, there's the world beneath us, that's the water world. God made it all. Sometimes it means that, cosmos. Sometimes it refers to the human world. The human world, referring to all human beings. This is where humanity lives. We're hearing a lot today about all of these mysterious people that live outside the proper boundaries of human life by living on different planets. And they fly these crazy little airplanes and they do this and do that and do the other. Well, in Romans chapter number 9, verses 19, now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all all the world, that is all the human world, may become guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sometimes cosmos refers to the materialistic world. 
This would refer to the things of the world such as wealth and riches. Matthew 16, verse 26, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And then sometimes cosmos refers to the evil world. This refers to the system of evil in the world. As in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. There's the world cosmos. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father but is of the world. It doesn't mean that that's all you find in the world, but it does mean that's evil that you find in the world. And then sometimes cosmos refers to the unbelieving world. This is the world of all unbelievers. 1 John 5, 19, we're of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And then there's the Gentile world. The Gentile world. Not Jews, but the Gentile world. This is the population of the world excluding Jews. Luke 12, 30. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. Talking about ethnos, the Gentiles of the world. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. It says this in Matthew 6, 32. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth you have need of all these things. And once again, the word cosmos means the encompassing world. It, it, it's, it's like a big hungry monster that takes one bite out and there's nothing left. It encompasses everything. It includes different kinds of people such as differences in races and tongues and tribes. Nobody's like you and nobody's like me. John 12, 19, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive you how you prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. They said that about people who follow Jesus Christ. They said the whole world is following after him. They did not mean every member of the human race was following after Christ, but they were meaning that people of different tribes and different tongues and different nationalities, different people of the world were following Jesus Christ, and they were. Let me give you an example of a variety of usages of cosmos, and it's all in one verse using cosmos, but explains it three different ways. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Look at those three statements. He was in the world, that is, the earth human world where all humans live. Christ was in the world. The world was made by him. Just not the earth itself, but the universal world of heaven and earth as well. And thirdly, the world knew him not. The people of the world did not know him. And then you find another example of that in John chapter 3 verse 17. Used three different ways. 
sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, the world might be saved. Sent not his son into the world, the human world where humans live. To condemn the world, the human beings of the world, and the world or the cosmos might be saved. The world of his elect. Before the worlds were ever created, God made a selection. Is it okay if I say God voted? God elected a certain people to be saved? Now the world in John 3.16, we'll try to hasten this. I know that it's terribly difficult. Sometimes we get into subjects that are so difficult and we have little time to spend on it. But the world in John 3.16, Jesus Christ the Lord was speaking to a self-righteous Jew. His name was Nicodemus who believed only the Jews were going to heaven and everybody else was going to hell. By the way, Jonah was a Baptist and he believed that, didn't he? When God told him to go and preach to Nineveh, he said, nothing doing. Let the whole bunch go to hell as far as I'm concerned because Jonah was going to heaven. He's a Jew. Our Lord informs him that there is a world of Gentiles who shall be reached with the gospel and who will be saved also. And we're seeing that very thing happen from the time Christ's incarnation took place 2,000 years ago until the present hour in which we live. There's some Gentiles coming to know the Lord today. They are here called whosoever wills. And the will makes up the elect of God with believing Jews. It is for this world of elect that God not only so loved, but will ultimately save when they come to Christ. Every one of them will come. Every one of them will come. In John chapter 4, verse 42, here was a woman of Samaria... And that's found in that location, John 4. Here was a woman of Samaria who met Jesus at the well. Here was a woman of Samaria who looked upon and was looked upon by Jews as a dog. They were called dogs, not human beings. Yet when she comes to know Christ as her Savior, you read the verse 42, she was more than a dog. She was a woman for whom Christ came to save and when he came to save her she was saved by his grace Hmm. how did they know that Christ was the savior of the world that's what they said he's the savior of the world not because he saved everybody in Samaria because he did not they knew it because it reached outside the Jews into the Gentile realm to other races and other tongues. This is the world that God loved. And this is the world that's coming to know Christ by believing on him. The world of God's elect. Does it include all of the elect? Every last one of them. Does it include everybody in the world? No, it does not. This is the world that Christ died for. 
This is the world that shall believe and be saved, the world of his elect. Now take just a moment and we'll bring this to a conclusion. The last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter number 7. Revelation chapter number 7. Let's look at verses 9 through 10. This is what the scripture says after mentioning these Jewish missionaries who will be used as missionaries during the great tribulation. In verse 7, And the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi, there were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar, were sealed 12,000. All of those Jews have numbers, and the numbers are the same, 12,000 for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Of the tribe of Zebulun, verse 8, 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, after this, I beheld, and lo, a great number which no man could number. Of all nations and kindreds, and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Not only Jews are going to be saved, elect Jews are going to be saved, but elect Gentiles are going to be saved also of every tribe of every nation in the world. What then is the beauty or what is the intent of God's love? Now let's, let's, let's talk business, okay? What is the beauty of John 3.16? God does not have to love anybody the creator is not obligated to do what the creature wants if he does it is because he wants to do it not because he has to do it God is a sovereign God he could have sent the entire human race to hell and been perfectly justified in so doing but it pleased God to love some. And it pleased God to pass by others. And not only will they believe and come to him, but they will give under, he will give unto them eternal life. Will you trust him today? You know what? <clears throat> Let me ask you a question and I close with this. Are you a whosoever will or a whosoever won't? Did you know the world is made up of two kinds? Whosoever wills? What about, do you believe that people whosoever won't will be saved? You say, oh, no, they're not going to be saved. Did you know you believe in limited atonement? Sure you do. Did you know there are people today you can talk to till you're blue in the face? They never will come to know the Lord is their Savior. They don't want to know the Lord is their Savior, and they don't much care for you. That's truth. 
But God has a plan, and in that plan is a beautiful subject of regeneration. God gives you a second birth, and you hear something you've never heard before, and you see something you've never seen before, and you begin to know something you've never known before, and that is the sovereignty of God, that God does what is will, and trust in him as your Savior, and believe in him as your Lord. John 3.16, he's not talking to everybody in the world, he's talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is pretty hard-headed. Quite frankly, I think Nicodemus trusted the Lord. I believe he did. He's one who showed up after the crucifixion to bring some expensive commodities to be used in the burial of Christ. Nicodemus obviously had a change of heart. There were two thieves on the cross, one on either side. One rejected the Lord. The other one said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What caused him to do the love of God shed abroad in his heart. Now, my question to you is this. Why in the world did he choose me? Why did he ever choose me? I'll never know. I probably will spend all of eternity trying to figure it out. Why did God choose me? Not for any good that I have done, but according to his mercy. He loved me. And he did it for a purpose. And it is by his mercy, by his grace, we want to be faithful in teaching that because we believe that's a part of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been so kind and so gracious. Let's stand, please, for prayer. Would you stand with me? Dear Father in heaven, we've never been here before of saying with all the honesty in our heart, Lord, I don't know if I'll ever preach again. But I want to be faithful to thy word. And God, I pray for preachers today they will be faithful to your word and teach these precious truths that salvation is of the Lord, not of our faith and not of our belief. Have mercy upon us, O God, and cause us to be rejoicing Christians. For we ask these things in Christ's name. For his sake we pray. Amen. Brother Roger. Let's take a hymn book and turn to hymn number 330.